Well, hello, and welcome to episode 17 of the Bomb City Podcast. My name is Nick. If you're a first-time listener, thank you so much for joining us. And if you're a returning listener, thank you so much for coming back. This episode is pretty special. My friend Billy Parker and I had this great opportunity to interview Roger Merritt, singer of Agnostic Front, a New York hardcore legend in his own right. Roger's also a founding member of the Rumblers Car Club, and he recently finished an amazing 54 Chevy. He also has an autobiography coming out this summer called My Riot, which I can't wait to read. It chronicles an amazing life well lived. I actually got to go out to Arizona and record this in Roger's house. So before we sat down and, and recorded the interview, he gave us a tour, showed us the, the amazing place that he has, some of the awesome stuff that he's done to it. And uh, we also went through some of his record collection, which is uh, astonishing, to say the least. We started listening to records, and that's where the interview starts. We are listening to a pretty rare 7-inch, an early San Francisco band called The Fuck Ups, which just seemed like the perfect way to start this, as it was pretty a representative of what the whole day was was like. So uh, thank you so much to Roger and his family for giving us the time, and thanks, Billy, for, for making this whole thing happen. So here it is, episode 17 of the Bomb City Podcast, Roger Merritt. Thank you so much for listening. This is the fuck-ups. Spunk one? No, before that. Before that? It was only a thousand made. It was supposed to be like a pre It was a, it's not the pre made, but the thousand pre ever. Yeah. A1, B1 Matrix, I had that. Wow. Came back. That band was so tight with Clint Matlock. Like, they, they sounded like a, an awesome version of the New York Dolls. Yeah, did, and they did claim Matlock was like too polished, so it didn't like. Well, they were trying to sell something, I guess. Yeah. I think like, um, So I, I grew up listening to Clash 
had the album, which is like the worst way to get into that band. Yeah. But I didn't realize how different the uh, US and UK releases were. They're like completely different songs. They sound different, different too. Yeah. yeah. Um, I have all the US releases in here, because that's what I'll play. Yeah. And that very first London Call it also was released as a three record deal. Yeah, all three of them. 12-inch bonus. I think my favorite Clash record, aside from the first album, is probably Give Them Enough Rope. But oh, that's my favorite record. Yeah. Okay. So good. I know that, like, they didn't like it because I, I believe it was Sandy Perlman that, like, produced it and they didn't, like, he was... Give Enough Rope is my favorite yeah. Clash record. Dude, yeah. Tommy it, Gun, every time those drums start up, yeah. like, ah! Oh! Like, <laughs> goosebumps. I covered the Disasters, um, um, the very first song. Uh, I just woke up. Safe European Safe European. Yeah. yeah. Did you guys do that in San Francisco? Yeah. I think I was there for that, yeah. That's rad. Was that with the... Were you guys playing with the business that night, or am I thinking of a different tour? Could have been with the business. Yeah. With the business. Yeah, there was like a year where Slims was like popping in San yeah, Francisco. Yeah. It was so much fun. Right? Whatever happened to that? That was such a good place. Slims. Yeah. I mean, when I was a kid, they changed the in-and-out rule, and then we sort of stopped going there. And then there was cool, like... So I was from the East Bay, so we'd take the bar into the city to go to shows. There was like places around the periphery. Still, like the pound was sort of like... Pound? Pound was so much fun. I love that. The stage was like this tall and you could get like right there. Dude, they used to have some Muddlehead Gardens, so many clubs. What was that other one? The early, early clubs are fucking amazing. Yeah, I guess that, you talk to people that lived in San Francisco in the 80s and it's just a completely different planet. Like, I'm just like New York City. I imagine, yeah. Only smaller. (laughs) So everything's set up now. Oh, I... So, the obvious big stuff I want to ask you, I think you've already answered a million times and it's in the book. The one thing from walking through your house and looking through records and stuff that's just sort of at the edge of everything that I want to ask you is, how do you keep it all? And how do you know what's... Like, well, oh, I forgot to show you the trunks in the garage. Because um, the Misfits collection had to start from, from day yeah, one, right? Right. And I've lost, I lost some of it in the fire. I had a fire. It's in the book. And then I got some of it later on too, while it was affordable. Not now, it's crazy. Yeah. But um, it's you know what it is. It's just I had stuff, and you know, and stuff came back to me. It was the craziest thing. Like just recently, like uh, I saw Amy, who's a singer of Nausea, which we have a Nadia with, and she's like, "Oh, I got a bunch of your stuff in storage." I was like, "Okay," you know. <laughs> and there she had. Uh, test pressings of our second pressing out of blood all these other re- all my stuff all records that she had uh-huh. and it was that one with I had another girlfriend told me the same thing <laughs> and I recapped it you know? <laughs> so I was like okay thank you you know and then uh, then my uh, I had stuff at Vinny's house at Kabula's house I had uh, uh, Dave Jones our first drummer he, he he actually I didn't even know he had the actual insert for United Blood this whole time uh-huh. and he goes oh, I got because I must have gave it to him to hold on to it too. He wasn't even the drummer yet. I was. It was rabies, you know. So it's just stuff was pretty much in different places, and I had whatever I could travel with. I've had a couple of trunks or in, I forgot to show you, and um, t-shirts and everything. And it was hard moving with a lot of stuff. But I would leave some with my sister or my brother or somebody, and then I, I had all my United Bloods with my brother, 
and victim of pain too. And if it wasn't for that, I probably would have lost a lot more stuff throughout the moves. But I kind of got more together towards the end. The very the very beginning of the 80s was probably the hardest. And then when I went to prison, like that bad brain single I gave you, I must have had four of them. That I showed you, I must have had yeah. four of them. I remember trading one for a stupid trade. I don't even want to talk about <laughs> back then. And it was just like, they were just coming and coming and going, you know, coming and going. I have records that people gave me. A lot, a lot of this stuff is was given to me. All the revelation stuff. All those guys are all my friends. All those bands, you know, Gorilla Biscuits, um, Youth of Today, all, all those bands, Warzone. So they gave me their records. I just kept it, you know. Like you saw that Half Life record, yeah. number point oh 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 one. You know, Mike gave it to me. Yeah, you know, I, I kept it. You know. <laughs> And he gave me that. I think he must have given me that in '85, whenever it came out. He gave it to me. Wow. And I just kept it. Just kept these records. I used to. I used to love. I love 45s more than LPs. And uh, the majority of my 40, my majority of my collection is tons of it. I would say, a good 400 of it's just 45s. And the remaining few hundred will be LPs because it was just always easier to keep the singles for me. The LPs are harder for me to keep. Yeah. yeah. The singles are pretty easy. I had them all in little boxes. I could put them everywhere, you know? 45s are the better playing yeah. speed anyways for Absolutely. records. For sure. All these bands that you're talking about are so, like, iconic now. But when you're, I don't know, like, when it's happening, did it seem like it was going to be something special? Did it seem like it was going to last forever? Uh, absolutely not. You know, it was weird. Like, I've, I've, I probably said this before, and if you would ask me back in 1983... 84, that Agnostic was going to travel the world and all this stuff. I didn't even know there was anything past New York City. Yeah. That's how I'm kind of, not ignorant, that's what I thought geographically New York was just New York City. I didn't even know there was a Buffalo or anything like that, <laughs> yeah. you know? Yeah. Or oh, New York State's huge, I didn't know. But if you would have asked me back then, I would have been like, you're crazy, like, who? this is just a little local thing. It was a really yeah. local scene all over the country. But what's really cool about it, when you sit back and you think about it, and even back then, we all kind of knew where each band was from. You could hear democrat- demographically, you kind of get where they're from. And each one of them were distinctive. I mean, you knew Black Flag right off the bat. You didn't have to know. You could hear it. You could hear Dead Kennedys. You could hear the Misfits. You could hear the Necros. You could hear a, a Negative Approach. You know, Agnostic Front. You could, everybody had a distinctive sound, you know. And it was cool, you know. And then eventually... You know, it, it, there's so many bands now, it's kind of hard. It's kind of, at the same time, it's hard to find, to be creative at, at nowadays. I mean, one thing that's missing that a lot of bands don't have today, I mean, anybody can mimic a sound or mimic anything. Let's, go, let's talk about cars, the same thing. You can recreate anything that was Larry Watson or Stalin. I mean, look, I did it. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? I'm just saying. But the difference back then was the... Just, just being the forefront in front of it. I mean, it was incredible what, what, what Barry Watson was doing, or what the Misfits are doing, or what the Dead Kennedys are doing, or Circle Just Black Flag. You know, or, or all Necros. You know, all yeah. what we were all doing. We just didn't know. You know, and at the same time, it's 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 just living at that time in those days was so different, especially music wise. It was very dangerous, and that element of danger is what's what gave it that sweet little ingredient that's why these bands sound the way they are you know and we had to live this dangerous life to to go to a show I mean it wasn't like 
your mother like today you, your moms and dads drop off your kids and they go back <laughs> home and it ends at a normal time no shows didn't even start till 2 in the morning 3 yeah. in the morning and if you really want to go to show you have to go to a bad neighborhood <laughs> so that was an adventure like shit you know yeah. so it was really it was just that little danger made it so special and that goes for the whole punk scene you know just read the stories about the Sex Pistols or the Clash, you know, where they all started. Little, little, the 100 Club. I've been in a 100 Club. I don't know if you ever, if you ever have it. The max you could put in there is maybe 100 people. That was our 8-7. The max we put in there, if we were lucky, was 50 people, you know? I was watching Another State of Mind the other day and what you were saying about, like, bands having distinctive sounds. And it, it really kind of hit me that it, without social media like nowadays or the internet like finding out about a band from another coast seems like incredible like how much of it was just like word of mouth when it came to shows and hearing about bands and well the majority of it was word of mouth but and it was word of mouth and location being the right place to find out where um pirate once the radio the pirate radios started coming in once the, the, the underground radio station started picking up the stuff then you could dial into it. that was our internet you know listen to like for us we had noise the show for instance in New York City and he'd play all these records and we're like oh shit and then we know you know because he would get them all and we, we'd get to hear because you're in the west coast with black flags playing all the time you know we don't get to see black flags until they came around but we got to hear the stuff thank goodness is pirate radio you know and then your local stores that was your local record store was our hard drive if you might want to put it to the right way you go to that local record store and anything new he'd be like yeah this just came in this is new this is new listen to this and then if you like something our way of networking was looking at the back of a record and see who they thanked and like okay and you and you look for those records like if they thank these bands they must they inspired them or their friends and they must be good too that's how that's how we networked you know <laughs> we cool. physically had to network you know we had to like be a part of the network now today today overnight you can find out what a band sounds like or a band could be a sensation overnight nowadays yeah you know and then you had it worked it works good for you and against you you know today you know what I mean back then we like music was changing but by the time something from England came to New York and that's not even that far like if a record was released in England, if a discharge released their Y record or whatever, it would take a good three to six months to come across to New York. And then another two months to get to the West Coast. You know, that's how it was. Now today, boom, you'll hear it right now. You yeah. know what I mean? And uh, that anticipation was great. That wait, knowing that, you know, you saw a flyer or something, it was coming, you waited, yeah. waited, waited, you know? It's crazy to think about, like, as a as a band nowadays, if you went and flyered town, you, you would probably get no results <laughs> at all. Yeah, you know that's kind yeah. of sad because I love flyers. I I didn't get to show you guys my flyer collection, and uh, that was part of 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 everything. Like I showed you a little bit of our film. You see on the walls, we stuck flyers up everywhere, lyrics yeah. and stuff like that. This our room was our our cave of what we love now 
you know, like I, sometimes even when I put out a record, I'm like, with my waste of my time, like really, I, I, I work so hard to think of the great cover, the great insert, the lyrics. It's almost like you might as well put it in a paper bag because nobody gives a shit, you know what I mean? <laughs> or really just download and that's it. Yeah, but yeah. you don't understand all the work that all these bands put into to doing this. It's like everything, you know, even with the flyers, making a cool flyer. It's like, whoa, this yeah, yeah. flyer, I'm passing it. And then you get, you get home, you put it up, or you, in my case, I had both. I would save it, you know? I heard a rumor in the early days of Agnostic Front, and I think the statute of limitations is up. I heard you guys came up with a symbol for the logo, and one morning it was just all over New York City. Is this, does that sound familiar at all? The, the Agnostic Front logo? Yeah, Mike was telling me, it said one day in New York, someone came up with some stencil, and it was on the sidewalk. Stencil Invader, that's the one that's in the back of United Blood. His name was Stencil Invader, he had a, he used stencil stuff, and he came up with this, the, the, it's supposed to be a guy questioning society covering one eye, but the skinhead covering one eye it goes to the pencil. It's in the back of the United Blood, and that was, uh, and I, and, and that it's in a movie too. And then the next thing you know, it's invaded. He was the stencil invader, so he put it around everywhere, and he gave us, and we would put it around everywhere, just spread everywhere. <laughs> that was just the logo. Nobody knew what. Else. And then we put agnostic front of the stencil under it or whatever. And that's how things were, man. You would you would walk go across the street, whatever. You look down, and you'll see like different bands had stencils of their stuff everywhere it was really cool you know that's awesome I'm glad I, I feel like I caught the last little bit of that like when I was a kid you could still walk down Berkeley and still like see flyers for Gilman like alright I'm going to that and uh, the last podcast that I did I, I interviewed Freddie Corbett at Temple Tattoo in Oakland first time I saw his name was like in an AFI record sleeve like thanks to so and so and that's so, like all that, that stuff is still around it's just a uh, the, the way people focus on, on... But, you know, don't get me wrong. It's just, you know, it's just... We, we grew up differently, you know. Not, nowadays, everybody's so uh, connected via the internet stuff. And maybe these things don't mean nothing to them as much as it meant to us. But, look, if it wasn't for that, look at that beautiful poster. Look at that. Yeah. I mean, those flyers. I mean, you can't even... You know, the internet can't give you that. You know, this is hand-printed stuff, you know. Like, we went out of our ways to do stuff. I hand-printed beautiful disaster posters, you know. And yeah. it takes the person, that personal part out of it, but it's cool that it gives you the music. You know, I'm all I'm all for the new bands doing stuff, you know. I'm not going to sit here and, and tell you how much better the old days were than the new days. I'm glad there are new days. Yeah. I'm glad I lived <laughs> my time and I experienced my time when I did because I feel like a lot of people are missing something that was very special. But, you know, that was my party, you know. Today, people have the different party. It's just not my party anymore, you know. <laughs> and I sit back here, and I put my music on, and I reminisce you know, on, on my past. And I, I'll pull out pictures. I'll pull out flyers. I'll sit here with people, just random friends of mine, and we just, what was this? Oh, look at that. Look at that. Like, I find things I didn't even notice in pictures. Like, holy shit. I found that stencil invader thing. Yeah. I, and I was... Making United Blood just the other day in a photo. I'm like, holy shit. <laughs> look at that. So we're cutting out the covers, you know? Like, it's just, it's just, it was a time and a place. And it was my time and my place. And everybody else will have their time and their place. And that's the beauty of hardcore. It's going to always, and punk, it's always going to be here. Car question? I hate cars. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I definitely wanted to hear how you got in the cars. It seems like living in New York City, that's a pretty tough thing to do to begin yeah. with. You know, that's a good question because I, my, first of all, we owned a family car gas station when we grew up, you know, 
my stepfather did. He bought those Bulldog gas in New Jersey. I used to pump gas. He says doing it back then, doing in the mid seventies. It was a crisis with gas. I remember he used to pump gas and take the the gas cap off and tell somebody lie to them. I was a kid that probably just did it anyway. So oh, you don't have a gas cap. And I'm like, oh, where's my gas? I'm like, well, we have. Well, I have a gas cap. Fit yours for a dollar. And they probably knew I was ripping them off. And they'll give the kid a dollar, will you? Because still until today in Jersey and in, I think in Oregon, the other places that you still have, you can't pump your own gas. They pump it for you. So I was just trying to make my money. <laughs> you know, I was hustling people for their own gas caps. You know. So back then, and I, you know, um, and I was always around cars. In fact. When I joined Agnostic Front, it was funny. We used to do shows, and I had this 1970 Challenger fucking done up. It was sick. Big old fucking 50s in the back. We used to go through the Holland Tunnel and take both lanes. It was so big. <laughs> and, I, and I couldn't really have many people in the back. We'd just put the guitars and stuff because it would hit and bottom out. And I kept it forever, and I parked across the street and from where Vinny's house was. And then one day, I just got tired. And it's gentrification started coming, and I couldn't park it anywhere. I used to park it a lot, and it closed a lot. And it was a great lot. It was where the hookers were getting blowjobs. You could put everything there. It was just that old New York, you know? <laughs> but then also that's kind of like, man, this is going to be a pain in the ass. And one day the car didn't start. called my stepdad. And he said, I'll come pick it up. He flew away from Florida, picked it up, and took it home. You can see it again until Florida. But I was always into cars, you know? And mostly later on, I got into more of the bikes because it was, like you said, it's tough to have cars in New York City, you yeah. know? Be the beast to be straight up. That's the truth. So bikes were easier, you know, kept them in the squats and the side parkings and stuff. So, but one day, like I think it was nineteen ninety six, me and Squirm, and I just I was working at Harley Davidson, White Plains Harley Davidson. He just came up to work with me there, and uh, we started talking about doing a car club. You know, we're like wow, it's just you know, we, we we had the bikes and everything. Let's do a car club. Let's do something different, bike and cars. And we just decided to just do a car, and we just that's how it came about. And he was always into cars, too. In fact, I bought his 50 Ford, which is the one you saw a picture of, from him. And uh, one thing went after another. We got a couple friends in L.A., had a couple friends in Florida. We started this thing. And throughout the years, we just celebrated our 20th anniversary last year. And uh, throughout the years, you know, people have come and gone. Those have been good people in the club, really. It's just, you know, two different directions and stuff. But I think it's... It's, it's in a good position now, you know, smaller, qu- more quality than more quantity. You know, when you start anything, you know, it's just, it's just a bunch of friends and eventually we got it down. We tweaked it. Yeah. Especially Arizona. I love all the brothers here in Arizona. Really good chapter, really good tight, really good friends. And, and we get along with everybody. We really do. You know, we get along with you guys, you know. We're easy people to approach, yeah. talk to, whatever. You guys have chapters all over the world now, right? We, well, we do. We mainly in America. We just have Los Angeles. We have here Phoenix. We have Albuquerque, New York, and Cleveland. I mean, there's a nomad chapter. Chapters that we, we used to. We said Florida has no more. And we just Berkeley area, California, no more. But we have a couple guys. But in Europe, it's a little bit stronger. It's a little bit more thriving there. I think. It's, it's, we were kind of talking about that. Um, we've been noticing a lot of not just the Rumblers, but other car clubs and other car scenes in, in Europe seem 
incredibly yeah. strong. We have, really thriving over there, yeah. and they get along so well over there. If you see all the shows, you know, they see all lifters, rumblers, um, uh, what are, what, choppers, singers, whatever, you know, but not these choppers and singers. I mean, what's sure. Just different takes of different clubs and stuff, you know, they're everywhere. And they're good people out there. Especially in Europe, man, the, Europe, the European rumblers are, there's, there's more chapters there. There's two in Italy, I think. Uh, there's one in, in Luxembourg. There's two or three in Germany. There's a nomad chapter. I don't even know. <laughs> but I I don't run this. I haven't been running the, the club in years. I let the guys in New York run it. So I just, I'm just a member, like here club for men. <laughs> <laughs> it's easier that way to be a member. Yeah. It really is. Just yeah. Even cool. here in, in, in the chapter here in Phoenix, is that I'm really. I'm a no man, so I'm kind of with them because they're, of course, I, I attend all the meetings, everything with them, but truly really they're a chapter. Do you see big differences, like, a, you know, since you have chapters across the country between them, like, locally? I mean, do you see, like, a big difference between, like, uh, Los Angeles and New York City? Like, well, Los Angeles has got its own special thing. They're, they're the only chapter that, that does a little bit over on the low end, low, low rider side, you know? Uh-huh. And that's exclusive for them. They want that's what they want to do, which is cool. But some of the brothers all over the world at the same time, they all have low riders too. I, I, that sixty-three Buick I had is in, is in France, in the French chapter. I almost forgot. <laughs> He's got that. My my thirty-two is in Italy, Romano, the, the the national president of the Rumblers in Europe. He has my thirty-two now. So they 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 got low riders and they got pretty much. Hot rods, customs, but exclusively there was an LA thing. It's funny, we were talking about how Europe, especially, like, not only just in the car culture, but like the music scene. Like, they seem like they come out in full force for shows and everything. You know what? Europe is just. America, you know what really ruined America? It's called MTV. (laughs) It really dictated in how people think. Or what they like, it kind of like, you know, like that going to that record store and all that stuff kind of went away because people would just watch MTV and then that's how they, whatever they were going, 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 that's what people would go see. But the cool thing about it is that when people would see something, not 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 all the time. I mean, there's a lot of great bands that have had success and they deserve success. Like for instance, your your Rancid, for instance, or a Bad Religion, even go ahead and, and even Green Day. You know, these are good bands. I don't care what anybody says, and they're truly—they're sticking to their their roots, and they're doing what they love. So you can't—that's what kind of what the Clash did. Everybody started calling the Clash something they would sell out because yeah. they signed to CBS. That was huge, you know. And people were giving them shit, but at the same time, they were still sticking to what they believe, what they love. They were still doing and, and doing what's real, you know. And I, I and I respect bands for doing that. And, but when these kids that don't know anything but that, they'll go out to, um, and all these other bands, we'll take on younger other bands just to introduce them to the real roots and stuff. Mm-hmm. Like, they'll, you, you'll see a, a kid will go to, like, a, uh, let's just say, a, a Jockey Murphy show or a Rancid show or Lagwagon or anything like that, and then, and then they'll meet other people, and little by little, they'll circuit into, like, what we call the underground, where we kind of, you know, I guess we've been the king of the underground. King Tut's grave over here. <laughs> but you know what I mean. Yeah. And uh, 
in Europe, it's not like that. In Europe, like Europe, everyone from kids to adults go out in full force. They just love music. If and it's if it's aggressive, because they don't care. They're not picky. They don't have boundaries. They don't start doing dealing with these barricades of this this vegan and that. You're not straight because you're not vegan. Wait a minute, you're not vegan. You know, like it's crazy. You know, whatever yeah. happened to don't drink, don't smoke, don't fuck? That was one of the three rules of straight. We <laughs> just that talked about that on the way over. Yeah, it went from yeah. three rules to well, who knows how many rules. Now yeah. you, you gotta you gotta be careful what you say. Or, you know. Yeah. We come from a generation where I come from where you know we just spoke our mind as it is. But just think about this. Imagine if the Sex Pistols were a band today. You think they would have the same impact that they had in 1977? Absolutely not. No. Absolutely. They would be destroyed overnight with the internet. Oh, yeah. Oh, racist, homophobic, everything you can <laughs> fucking think of. But you know what I mean? That right, was, yeah, we were, totally. We were, I, was, I, I love the Sex Pistols. I mean, there's a lot. And even some of the bands, uh, adolescents, for instance, with some of their songs, or some of the stuff's tougher than to play in Europe, you know? It was just punk. Yeah. You know, but now it's become this politically correct world, but... What's beautiful about it is I was a punk rocker when politically incorrect incorrect was correct. Right. And that's yeah. what I like. I like the politically incorrect that was correct. Yeah. And the politically correct, which is too much, you know? Uh, in Europe, it's it's wild. It's great. People love music, and they come out full force for music. They don't really care about anything else or any subdivision or anything else. Have you guys gotten a lot of chances to play in Latin America? Yeah, Latin America is phenomenal. What I love about Latin America... Is it's a third world country, so it kind of feels like old New York. It feels like all the old Berkeley, old LA, you know. And these people could actually relate to what we're saying, what we're doing a lot more because they're living it in, in, in a sense, you know. Like if you read my lyrics on Victim in Pain, and you go to New York City right now, you're like, "What the hell is this guy talking about?" This <laughs> is nice. Yeah. yeah, you can't relate to it, but lyrics of victim of pain, you can actually relate to today. If you go to like South America, you know, and stuff like that, it's just weird, you know. We were talking earlier too, like, um, you know, what kind of brought you to Arizona? I mean, of all yeah. places. Oh. Well, I've always loved Arizona. I've traveled the world, traveled the country, and Arizona was always a place I really liked. I didn't know the summer was going to be that bad. <laughs> but I always really liked it. But I hate the winter. Yeah. I can't stand the cold winter, so I prefer it, you know? It's no different in the cold winter. I tell people, look, in the wintertime, you put your cars away in New York, whatever, done, right? But you go from your hot apartment to your warm car, hopefully, if you've got warm, warm <laughs> time, to the warm store, back to the warm car, back to your warm apartment. Here's the same thing. It's opposite. We go from our cold home to our cold air-conditioned car to our air-conditioned malls back to back through the heat you know it's a reverse yeah. but there's no shoveling the shit, to do that <laughs> shit you know you know yeah. that shit to no deal salt with. yeah right and if i want to go see snow i'll just drive an hour and a half north and there's more snow at the grand canyon than anywhere else right i got sleds over there there were the kids down there two or three down the hill come back let's go home and it's perfect you know but we came here because my wife um didn't finish her studies here at ASU years ago. And she's like, oh, something, you know, she wanted to complete. So we're like, okay, let's go there for a year. That's all she had left her, her senior year and finish. As soon as we get here, within a month of us being here, she was pregnant. So we had our first kid. And then 
We had our second kid. We're like, well, where are we going to go? We can't go back to New York. I, was, I had a fourth floor walk up, rent control, bro. It's in pop. Up and down, you know, carriages and everything. There's no elevator, you know? Yeah. And living in secluded in a small little area, like, it's affordable. And it's, it's, it's okay, you know? And we happened to come here when it was a good timing. Well, not really, but it was like when the housing market was coming down on our stuff. So yeah, we got into something good at a good time. So for those that don't know about uh, Roger's other hobbies, he has a dope allied-built Schreiber home mid-century. <laughs> um, how'd you come about finding the house? And were you in the market for something mid-century? We were, specifically, you know, as soon as... It, the timing became right for it because you know these homes generally these homes these tribal homes generally will the people that want these homes are usually architects younger crowd younger general uh, younger families you know because it, it's, it's character it's got something different you know it's not your your traditional cookie cutter home you know so they're sought after but because it is what it is it's usually, you know, a good 10, 15, 20% more than your normal home. Mm-hmm. And at the time when we first moved there, you could pretty call your price and anything you want. And, you know, it was all, it is what it is. But we got here when the market, we got into our home when the market crashed. And you couldn't do that anymore. You, you know, the, your guy who was appraising the house didn't care it was a shopper home. To them, if your bank's going to give you a loan, it's a home with three bedrooms and two baths. I don't care who built it. I don't care if it was a, Frank Lloyd Wright. It didn't make matter at that time. So it was. we were able to get it at a, your regular market price for your regular homes around here. And we knew this one was for sale. We, we knew, it, and it's hard because this wasn't on a market. It wasn't an MLS. I knew where all 17 of these are in the valley. And I would just drive one day with my brother, and I was in a contract with another one. I went, I went on Earl down here. And I was like, I was showing my brother where they all were, and I Came down here and, and still had the four sisters. Yeah, I told him, yeah, this was a little bit overpriced. Go grab the fire. And I saw he dropped down $50,000. I was like, holy shit, let's call him right away. And I called him and we came in and struck a deal right there and then. And we were getting out of that one because it was problems with that other one. So um, that's how we came across it. I, I love I love mid century modern everything from, I mean, I love the 50s, 60s. Is, it's what I. Look, look at my look at everything that I love about it. Look at my cars, my homes. I just it's just a really cool time in architect, really cool time in, in creativity and automobile industry and all that stuff and everything was starting to really develop, you know, cool, like, you know, colors and cars and you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. You can relate to it. Even bikes, everything was everything like especially that very beginning of the six this one was built in sixty three. I think anyone anywhere from from like 59 to 64 were the tremendous years for the automobile industry, everything. Everything was changing. Like, oh, look at all the car shows from 1960, 61, 62. Like, it was bam, you know? Yeah. Look at the same for the homes. This was, I had the thing from the neighborhood. This was the top, this was 17,100 brand new. And it was wow. the top of the line. It was the hip, they called it the hip home. And it's an allied built, allied God and Charles Shrubbery do a couple of homes. But this is the top of the line of the Allied, you know, due to the brochure. It's like, if you want to be hit and move into a hit, this is it, you know? But what was weird about it is um, 
Schreiber designed a home, but they kept the Allied kind of uh, interior-wise, which is really weird, you know. Yeah. Because Schreiber was was a Polynesian art, um, architect, whatever. Came just came from Polynesia, came over here, and designed all these homes. And it was just weird because the outside looks phenomenal, and the inside was still Allied, you know. Yeah. So then. The, people, the younger generation of people like myself and the Jennies and people, local people around here. Jenny, who was like my realtor. I don't know if you know twins. Yeah, twins and Jenny and Christy. Yes. Yeah, they're, they're phenomenal. They, they specialize in the men's surgery modern home. And she owns one. Hers is beautiful. It's been a sunset and everything. And we just took it to like the more of what it should look like level. It's awesome. Keeping some of its tradition. We we kept a lot of its tradition, but at the same time, we put some modern things that we felt are a necessity for our family. It's nicely done, for sure. Yeah. You do some like home tours and stuff like that, too, right? Yeah, we've done two home tours in this one. We did the modernphoenix.net home tour, which you can see there. If you go to modernphoenix.net, I think it was... the two tours ago so what year is this 2017 so it may have been 2015 you can look at the tour you'll see you can see the house and we also did the one a special one just for South Phoenix I mean South South Scottsdale special tour that they did just for the area because they're booming up they're trying to rebuild this area apparently this area should be really thriving with a bunch of stuff when it was first out here yeah, um, they're trying to redo that yeah. corridor too. Try to rebuild that area, yeah. which is good. And yeah, it is hot here. Right? You know, I sometimes the beauty about it, though, guys, is I did come here. Everybody's like, "Oh, why did you come here?" Whatever. Most of my summers, I spend away traveling, so mm-hmm. I get to I get to leave it. <laughs> <laughs> my wife gets to sit in it the whole time. Yeah. You know. But uh, I do, I do like it here a lot. I, I, I wish I could think of another place I'd like to go. You know, like I like Florida, but it's too humid. Yeah, Texas, same thing. Austin, too humid. And uh, this is just a cool place to play home. Plus, the second thing is we love our home so much. We're like, if we take it off and bring it with us, we'll move <laughs> right. Awesome. Um, you guys have done a ton of work on the house. I was actually reading through. I think one of the, the websites you listed through, and it, I read something that was really interesting to me that. When you did the cabinets, you prototyped everything in cardboard to make yeah. sure it was going to be exactly everything, even the bathrooms. I'd love to hear more about that. I, what it, well, I guess my wife hates that. <laughs> she thinks I'm nuts. I actually laid everything out, even the shower. I, first, I would tape it. I would tape exactly where, like, if this is the area, I'd tape with green tape, of course. <laughs> the size of the shower, this is the sink. And then I would build, I would proto build, like, the sink, this height, whatever, this, whatever. And I bend over to make sure I could away <laughs> Or I can bathroom I have enough room where I'm gonna take the shit and I can <laughs> shit. You don't have to shit one corner of your ass is this way or something, you know? Like you got a nice dumping area and then as you got grow to. into your bowl, because you know these things happen, you know, 30, 45, 40, 50 pounds later, you can still take a comfortable shit, you know? So I made sure all that, like our kitchen layout, there's another one too, because we were con- con- contemplating and doing a an island and and I tried it in no ways and it just didn't fit right it just felt like oh, I kept hitting it to fit right so we scratched it and I'm glad we did that because it really helped us because we would have done just what we wanted to do and we would have been like shit now this freaking island's going to go away or shit now look at the way I got a shit sideways you know, <laughs> you know like so much like 
I'm kind of crazy like that. Ask my wife. Like the wall, like I, I just can't see. I'm gonna put the door there. I measure everything and I move things. I, I like there was a, a kitchen wall I, I, where the cabinets are. They're perfectly up to a certain. I mean, I'm crazy. I also have ABD and everything else. You notice everything has to be at the same line. If you look at my house next time, I'll show you. All the lines all are even. I made all those lights to so they're exactly the same height. Because, you know, if yeah. you buy them normally, you know, first of all, I don't like that plastic. Uh, the cable? Cable. Yeah. You know? I made them. I, I, I cut all those tubes. I made everything, right? And I shot a laser to make sure they're all perfect. <laughs> and if you look at all my switches, they're all straight up. Yeah. I'm crazy. They're all clocked. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> and go look, and I, ch I challenge you to look anywhere over the house. My wife thinks that once in a while she'll turn one just because she's just to fuck with me. Yeah, every <laughs> screw in the room, yeah. all switches are, are clocked. Yeah, because I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm an electrician too, so I helped a lot yeah. doing all the electrical and everything. Where'd you learn that? Yeah. In jail. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> which is horrible because. I the restroom. Right there, because my, uh, my certificate says Department of Corrections. Mm -hmm. I can't do anything with that. And I, when I came here, I tried to do an electrical thing. To switch it to something that would say whatever, you know, mm -hmm. other than Department of Corrections, how do you go get a job like that? You got a lot of questions to answer, right? <laughs> but uh, anyway, I, I work, I, I had my buddy Mike from the Fat Skins, he has a company, Oxley's Electrical, and he takes me out, which is great, helps me when I'm home. I, I got a little bit more of an You hear that? That's not me. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. So anyway, um, I'll, I'll let the stream go by. This is good background noise for you. Man, you must have been holding that in a long time. Yeah, I, I was. Jesus. Wow. We're timing this thing here. Yeah. I'm going to run out of hard drive space. <laughs> yeah. Okay, that's all, folks. Good night. Oh, yeah, right out of space. <laughs> so anyway, in New York, I did a lot of, uh, I always did uh, carpentry, mm -hmm. and uh, besides electrical, so building walls, all that shit, concrete, uh, uh, sheetrock, all this stuff is not normal for me. It's not, you know, there's only things I like, I don't know how to pour concrete. Same thing with the cars, you know, I'm more mechanical part. You know, you do a little mechanic things. I can do basic to do a basic weld, of course, and basic bodywork, but for for what I wanted to do with my car with morphine, mm -hmm. I wanted to bring it to the my dream car, so I, I had to get other friends to help me with it, the rumble guys at the club, you know. But that was the same thing with the house. Yeah. Awesome. And with, speaking of which, with morphine, with the car too, everything was mocked up the same way too. Yeah, I things I think it's probably a pretty good place to start talking about the sure. 54. Um, I guess we, we talked a little bit about it earlier. Uh, you want to tell me how, how you found the car and what your goals were for it? I found, I had a, when I moved here in Arizona, I didn't want to bring both two cars. It was just too much. I knew I was going to bring a 32. Mm -hmm. And then I sold my original 54 back home in New York. I pulled all the speed stuff I like out of it because I knew I was going to get another 54. So as soon as I got here, I, uh, I bought a 54 from a, uh, friend of mine here was at the Sinners Clubs here and it was at the time it was in Tempe it was the motor and training had just been done and they were they were starting to um, lower it 
So I kind of didn't have a place to put it anyway. I had only one car garage where I was living, and I had my 32, so I'm like, oh, finish it, you know. <laughs> and Empire Customs was doing the, uh, the lowering, which they did a phenomenal job. I mean, hard wire, I've never seen anything like that. Yeah, the lines are just beautiful. They're beautiful, they really yeah. are. He did a great job, Jason. And he was a center too. We like, it's cool, like I met good people here as soon as I moved here, kind of car related, so it was cool. Like, you know, the only thing is it was down in Tucson, which is a pain in the ass. Yeah. You know? yeah. But anyway, when I got it up here finally, um, I really only had it up here for like a week or two, really for real. And then Jimmy came around with Mike and a bunch of people, you know, and he had just finished Barney with some purple, you know? yeah. And then uh, I had I had taken the door handles off. I was starting to do some of the welding on it, some of the stuff. And then I had a, my rec. I, I don't I, I don't know if it's the correct word. Rectina is that right? In the back of my eye, it okay. erupted. Uh, right yeah. It erupted and I went blind in one eye, left eye, and it was like fuck, you know. And I had to, they were thinking about surgery and all this stuff, and they would keep me in a certain position to the eye, it cleared it up. And I got about seventy percent of my eye sent back. I wore glasses and stuff. And then I was like, fuck, there was a just bad timing. And then Mike happened to come with, with uh, Jimmy. Like, oh, yeah, like, you know, he's like, you know, we, we hit it off. We were friends anyway. And he's like, yeah, you know, like, let's do it. We'll bring it to the shop. We'll do it over there or whatever. And he was doing something else. I was like, okay, I'm in a hurry right now anyway because I can't do anything. So we made plans. Like, three or four weeks later, he called me, bring it to the shop. Let's just get on it. And it was planned. We were going to knock it out in two, two or three months, which we did. At that two or three month mark, we're ready to go. You know, everything kind of like just a basic uh, backyard, uh, 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 schoolyard type of uh, high school. Yeah, building. high school building. Yeah. And then my wife showed me this movie. I forgot what it was called. She still has it. About do what you always wanted to do. Something crazy like that. The Secret or something. Yeah, it's called yeah. The Secret. Yeah. You see it? I, I, you know, my parents had it. People have offered it to me to watch it. Don't do it. Yeah. <laughs> well, I did. I saw yeah. the secret. It's a nightmare. <laughs> the nightmare. So the secret turned into a nightmare. And we were done. I mean, taped up the whole... We just, I was just going to paint the, the roof a different color. Done. Everything ready to go. Ready to spray. And I fucking showed up the next day with the... the we are Quarter area for the glass, you know, window area, and I just laid it down. I'm like I'm chopping this thing right now. Are like, you sure? Like, yeah, let's do it. Cut it right off the roof. Had my wife come that night. Had photos, and we just kept moving it to where we liked it. And then one thing led to another. Because I was like, wow, all right. So now I got the roof where I wanted to. Of course, everything looked great. But man, I really always loved those tail lights, and you know, in um, Wayne Stark's car. Yeah, that's to me it was always incredible. Sure, how it goes to that. And it just one thing led to another, and then as it, it came together really fast, Mike, oh, did I not mention Mike? I'm sorry, Fu Manchu no, yeah, Mike? Yeah, he's, he, okay. And he's a genius and an artist. He was a real artist, like every, like every, like your, like your, every artist type of guy is, is super creative, but super weird in a weird way. Yeah. And that was Mike. He was a good, he was really a good person, honestly, really a good person. I got to know him, I think, better than anybody else has got, ever gotten to know him, his, old fa- his mom, his family, you know? And he's a gentleman, was a sweet person, a really good heart, big heart, but he just had 
Yeah, his demons, you know. Yeah. We all have some sort of demons in us, and his were thriving at the time, you know. And uh, and he and we did all this really fast. It looked great, but he, as you, if you saw the build, as it kept going and going and going, he kept geeking out on stuff, you know. I'm sure there's other parts of the reason why things were geeking out, which I don't talk about. But anyway. And, and it was fucking right. He was right. Like this many, like there was, so that one time where we did the whole tail, it was all done. And I, I happened to be doing a little tour and I stopped in, surprisingly, just stopped in. The fucking thing, the right hand side, driver's side, cut out. Like, what the <laughs> fuck? We just finished this thing, huh? <laughs> And he was right. I hate to say, he was right. Every little part, everything, even like, it was done kind of like your Dwayne Starks, you know, moving yeah, up. But then he figured out all this stuff that was wrong with it that nobody else in the world would ever figure out was wrong. That's a beautiful car. Oh yeah, he was right. He dropped. He raised a quarter by an inch and a half. He dropped the pan bottom up where the bumper is and all that. About mm-hmm. another inch and a half. He just geeked out on all this really crazy shit. Even the back curb, the curvature. I was telling you about the trunk. Yeah, the catwalk. Every catwalk, everything. Just geeked on this stuff that I would have never. No one ever would ever geeked on. And probably tons of fifty-four bills out there. Yeah, but he got him. He did, and uh, he was right. And then unfortunately, he ran into some trouble times. Had to go to prison. Yeah, we everybody that, that helped me on that car was every one of the rumblers here, including Mike. Mike was like I say, he was a prospect. He was actually a member. He became a rumblers, and uh, we, it was pretty much like a cool rumblers build. Everybody mm-hmm. had their hands and helped me out. Jimmy, Eric who did the body and paint and really final assembly with me, everything, you know, if it wasn't for Eric, we wouldn't have ever finished. He prospected on that car mm-hmm. from the very beginning, you know? We were there like, just fucking going crazy, like five, four or five of us at a time, in it, you know? And um, it, beca- it it got to where it got, and it, when he came out, he was in a good state of mind, but things changed again, and... Yeah. Uh, Unfortunately, I had to take the bill that was really something that was special for him, myself, both of us, and I had to move it. I really had to go elsewhere with it. I, I was kind of put up against a wall. I had no choice, right? to be right. honest with you. And and a lot of people, in, what's cool about it is in Arizona, built a car fully, totally, fully built by mm-hmm. Arizona people, you know, and mostly club guys, which is really cool. And all the people that are in, in different clubs saw a lot of, the build and saw a lot of it happening in person, not just on your your threads on, on Los Boulevardos or on the ham. Yeah. And it was cool, but then the thing it got really weird where a lot of people started putting their distance away from a lot of things, and including myself. Yeah. And unfortunately, Mike passed away. And everybody knows this. Yeah. And um, you know, a long time ago. And one thing that bothered me is I saw a lot of people that. Were, we were really good tight with and they pulled away for whatever reason I don't blame them shit got really crazy yeah and the you know, poor guy dies and now everybody's like ah, you know when, yeah when he needed the support he didn't have it there were times where I was out looking for him because I was good friends with his mom and I would find him in the weirdest places yeah and just leave him alone let him call, calm down because he was out there you know but there was nobody else searching, just maybe two or three of us. And it's kind of hard to, to take in to think about, you know, and then, then when the person's gone, everybody else is, what were you doing these hard times, you know? Yeah. But 
they had their reasons. Those reasons why people kept their distance, and I see it. So, and no, no, and in the long run, it's good that um, you know that that it, the car has been completed. Yeah. In the long run, it went. Through, we went through hell. Yeah. It was a seven-year, or possibly, it was an easy seven-year build. Yeah. And a lot of it had to do with the fact fact that I. I will not allow anyone to just build a car for me. That's not me. Yeah. I have to be hands-on. Even my daughter was part of it. <laughs> and a lot of a lot of things had to do with the car was on hold till I got back. And boom, all in it. Or I told I got back. Boom, all in it. And this just just me. I can't sit back and wait and watch. I had to be in it too, you know? Yeah, it's, it was amazing to see it, you know, completed because usually when a project drags on for that long... Those cars disappear. Oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, never for finished. a while, it dis- once for a while, it disappeared for a while. Yeah, you know, purposely. You know, I just wanted to be disappeared for a while. Plus, the fact that I was touring a lot. And like I say, yeah, I'm not. It's pushed in a corner. It was pushed out of an Eric's shop when he was another place in a corner until I came back. When I came back, we pulled it in. We did shit. I leave. We pulled it out. He did shit. You know, is it is his business. And that's. Same everywhere we had it, pulled in, pulled out, pulled in, pulled out. Something's happened, we pulled out till I was home, and that's the way it had to be. But then I left things away for a while because I wanted the next time the people to see it was bam, painted. But from that point to that point, it took another three years. Yeah, did you kind of? You were probably very involved. I'm assuming with the paint and well, yeah, even with the games and the paint was a good story. I should tell the story because. um, I went from originally I wanted the car to be painted pink. Yeah. Pink's always been my favorite color. Don't tell nobody. <laughs> you saw that pink initial. That pink initial is my favorite of all my everything. Mister Sammy and I own the pink initial is my favorite, and I secretly always always loved pink. You know, and I wanted to do pink, but we couldn't get the right pink. We we thought we had the right pink once with with Eric, and then it looked great, and from an angle it looked like a burnt hot dog. <laughs> Holy shit! My whole car it looked like a burnt hot dog. You know? <laughs> And we went as far as Prime did. You've seen it in the film. Prime didn't like a pink because that's the route we were going to go. And then Eric has this really great thing for blue. And he said, I got this really cool blue. I make something to show you. So he's showing us, wow, that's nice. Let's do it. And then I talked Eric into going out of his comfort zone. Eric is an amazing painter. He's an amazing body guy. I mean, he, he took, you know, what me and Mike did to a completely different level he had to redo a lot of things and do things man that car is perfect you know straight as an arrow and I, I'm thankful to Eric Eric Rowling by the way he's a, also a club brother who prospected on my car from the very very beginning and uh, without him it would have never been finished you know it's been a, 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 his, a journey with him the whole ride too you know he's seen it from the very beginning till the very end and uh, he would uh, he Wanted to paint his blue, and I took threw him out of his comfort zone. I said, "No, I want to do something wild. You know, we, you know, it's got to be like very Watsonish. That's what I love and stuff. Very wild." And he's like, "You sure?" I'm like, "Yeah." So then we we laid the blue, and we taped it all up. I'm like, "Yeah, that's cool. That's what we want to do." And I lo- really dug it. And we laid the blue, in it, and I loved it in blue. I was like, and he was getting ready to do like the silver and keep going. I was like, no, no, no. I kind of <laughs> liked it all blue. You know, he goes, no, he goes, fuck you, man. He told me to get out of my comfort zone. I'm getting out of my comfort zone. I'm like, oh, no, but I really like, you know, fuck you. And he's just shut the fuck up. We're doing it. And, he's, and I, I, was, I was there with him for two, 
took two weeks to paint it into the just the two tones. I mean the the suede. I mean, yeah, I mean not the suede. The uh, doing the panels, the fades, and the fades, and everything. And uh, for two weeks, every you know, we'd be there and tweaking and doing this, tweaking, and we finally finished. And we and we we took you know, I, it takes a while to take tape off. Yeah, it takes a long time. Yeah, you know, a, a yeah, paint job like that. It's not it's not gonna happen overnight. And we loaded it. We're like, we're looking at it. Wow, it looks great. But we knew there was something missing. I've always loved seaweed flames. That was, and my biggest joke throughout the whole build from the very beginning was I should have just flamed it. <laughs> just should have just flamed it. Like, you know, seven years later, like, fuck, I should have just flamed this fucking thing, you know? Like, you, you get frustrated. And seven years is a frustration. Yeah. And I finally flamed it. <laughs> but I had nothing to do with the flames, I'll tell you that much. I went as much as with, with Eric with the initial just the fades and last stuff we knew that I wanted to do the flames but I had to go on tour yeah. so here I am again about to go on tour he's oh when we get back I'm like no I can't wait anymore it looks so good it looked really good I'm like just fucking do it man just do it he was he sure because he didn't want to do anything without me you, you know it's any real good painter and doing stuff like that you, you want to be I'm like, I'm like Eric I trust you enough just do it and I was on tour he kept sending me pictures I was like yeah no, I don't like that. Do you like this one? I don't like that. You know, thank God we have the internet. Right. And, I, and I'm like sitting up and I'm looking at my phone and I like that, like that. And, we just, and just do it. You know, they had the purple I wanted, a little bit of purple pink in it. Let's do it. The dash was painted completely different because what we did was we painted the dash first and then we painted the car and then the dash didn't make, make work in the car so we had to do, redo the dash again. A lot of little things like that. A lot of little things like that. And But... It was a necessity to get to where we got to, but uh, that was interesting. It was I, I've never seen a, 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 a I was never involved with any type of paint of a car like that to that extreme, and it was really stressful. Yeah, because I really did like that little, <laughs> but I'm glad we did it. You know? Yeah, yeah, you knocked it out of the park. For yeah, sure. I think so. Well, every knocked it out of the park. I, my biggest joke is that uh, I always tell everybody he makes uh, I uh, he makes the take makes the paint for me. But in reality, I was the one that was mixing the paint. He, he shot it. Yeah, I didn't want to go near it. I was terrified. Yeah. When it comes to finished body, finished paint, no. Especially my own car, like, no way. It went this far. You, you know, I could, I'll do something. Like, I, 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 I had no problem spraying, priming it. Yeah. I did that a fucking million times. With that squeegee's primer a million times. Trust me, there's been about... Uh, 15 quarts of squeegee primer on this thing, but you know, about sanding it out, whatever, and all primer, no problem. But when it came to that, no, Eric, yeah, I'll be, I'm here with you. Here's the holes, whatever, you know, but <laughs> this is your magic, man. And I think the, the yeah. interior deserves, you know, uh, you, you mentioned that. Well, I'm trying to remember the guy who did my interior, I'm trying to remember his fucking name, Brian. Brian, okay, thank you, no problem. I actually, um. Before I even knew, like, you were going to have your car done with him, or before he even started on it, I was actually emailing him about and eventually doing mine, but he's so booked right now. Right? Like, hey, you're out, yeah. Let me tell you something. Brian is another one of these guys that, um, great guy, he came around and, and was watched the build unfold, peeking here and there, but he wanted to physically come look at the car, and every time he came, he was like, wow, he was, he was blown away. And he and we we went back and forth a bunch of times at kind of what my direction, what I see, what his direction, and obviously I was going off a lot of little books. I'm a total little books freak. I 
I have every error every you know every year blah 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 whatever and uh, I was very comfortable that he got it that he understood where the car was going and, and he wanted to see what would happen after the paint and we, when we finished painting it he's like okay that's, this is what I'm seeing and he came up with a design which was great of course we loved it he came up with like three designs and it's hard to pick again you know painting your car is probably the hardest thing you could ever do I don't think of anything harder than, than that. And then now the interior. But just when I thought it was over, <laughs> okay, God, I'm glad that's done. Comes the interior. You could fuck up a car easily with that too. I've seen, I see some great looking car interior all fucked up. A lot of newer weed shit in it. You know yeah. what I mean? Nerd yeah. steering Yeah, just shit that don't work. <laughs> Center console. Yeah, it's just shit that Couple don't line up and don't work. So bam, here I am in the same situation. Like, fuck. And then we were calling this, we had different plans from the beginning, and as it's going, like I said, we had to redo the dash differently, and and as it's moving, like, everything changed. Even though what we had decided we were going to, we were going to do white interior, you know? Yeah. But then we realized there was so much going on, like, it'd be too much, add another color to all the difference. And he, and then we, even the rug was going to be different, everything was going to be different. We went to the day, we bought the car, and we had already picked, like, we even had to pick the fabric. And we're like, ah, it's not working. I went with my wife. My wife has always been like, uh, I trust her so much in 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 uh, design. Guys, you see my house. She designed my house, and I I I, I had to bring her with me. Same with, with the paint. I had to show her everything, and she's like, yeah, it looks good. She's she's got an eye for that. Not that not that Eric doesn't or not right. Brian doesn't, but she I brought her with me, and we picked up the three parts that worked and Brian did his thing and Brian was another one of those guys that um, I was a little nervous I, I shouldn't have been because he's great but here's something he has really never done something more little books you know he's, he does a lot of high end nice stuff yeah and he kept me in surprise the whole time and then boom I went, oh, holy shit kept knocking me out again like just everything and he, he, it was amazing yeah, even the knobs with the Cape confirm for that knob guy, the little knobs and stuff. Nick, what's his yeah. name? It's that, Nick something. Yeah, that happened twice. I bought a set off him, and I thought it was the right blue. It came, it was wrong. So then, after I painted the car, I took all the samples and I sent it to him, and he came back with, "This is the closest I got." And look, hit it out of the park again. Yeah, yeah, that's great. All those little touches in the interior are so cool. Yeah. Like there's there's little panels inside of the door jams, the door jams, everything, and and then that was another thing. Like we did all that; those door jam panels matched. Uh, there used to be panels on the on the dash too, and it just didn't work with the outside, but it kind of worked on the door jam. So we, we got got to save some of those. Yeah, right, cool. Such a neat touch. I had another question. I wasn't sure the right way to, to work it in. You ended up working with India Larry for a minute, right? Yeah. How did you meet him? Oh. Uh, I worked with with SD SD cycles, and then I worked with Steg, and I worked with Don separately. Steg was cycle cycles, and Don was English Don's. English Don was here for a while. He died here. He was here for a while. He was at our first Rumble show. He showed up, <laughs> and of course, Indian Larry was part of all that stuff too. He ended up working with all the same guys too. We all kind of we were just a little small group of chopper guys that we fucking. That's what we did. We we didn't know. And again, we were doing all these chopping things before people were doing chopping things. And were those guys aware of like 
Yeah, they knew my band, of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They come to all my shows. That's, that's, cool. that's, that's cool. how we know each other. In fact, there's a there's a weird film, Matthew Barney film. I don't know who you know who Matthew Barney is. I don't. He's like a famous artist, and he's he was married to Bjork, nothing more. And his favorite band is Agnostic Finance Control. This weird. Uh, they Google in a museum. It's really artsy. And they smash a car, and the interior of that car I took for all the pieces for that for my third. Wow. Well. Yeah. And they smash a car. And it's like three hours of a car getting smashed and no no nothing. And us doing this basic weird shit. It's really weird. <laughs> bizarre. That's rad. Super bizarre. Like you, you'd have to like. Anyway, Andy and Larry loved Matthew Barney. I was like, really? He goes, I love Matthew Barney. He's like, he actually, it looks like a computer may have done that. He wrapped the Chrysler building, physically wrapped it. Like it's just weird stuff. Like he'll sell this film for three million dollars just one. Stuff like wow. that. He's pretty famous. Look him up. Yeah. And I got, and before Larry died, I did get Matthew Barney to go see Indian Larry. He was just amazed. I'm like, wow, how can you be really amazed by this? He was, and then when, I, and Indian Larry's coffee book, they got Matthew Barney to do the, in, the, the intro to it, which is really cool. It was, it, he, it was like his dream to meet Matthew Barney. Wow. But it was just, oh, it's bizarre for me to even think that. But that's how, that's how these artists think in these real crazy creative ways. I mean, there was another one like Mike. Yeah. Really out there. Great guy. His wife band was another great. I have Indian Larry's t-shirt. That right off his back. I started, wow. I'm going to hang it up in my thing. Like one of the last shirts he wore. Uh, his wife gave him that He says, I want you to have this. It's still his DNA. I never washed. Yeah. But uh, we were all really good friends and that's how we clicked. You know, we were doing a, the New York Chopper thing before it became everything. Yeah, it's kind of funny. We were talking about how um, so many musicians, uh, it seems like bass players in particular, both Billy High played bass, and uh, you play bass. Yeah, play too. bass. Originally, I played bass in all, almost every band. So many people from music also get into cars, like is Alex McKay's uh, into motorcycles now. Mm-hmm. Like, it, so many people circled back into it. Or, or so it seems to me. Were you guys talking cars back in the eighties? I'm sure we were. You know, I just recently saw what's the name from the Dam um, in London. I was living in London. I lived in London before I lived here. Dave, that Dave. He was also with the bikes too. Yeah. Remember when that movie, that Chopper, the Choppers movie came out, from California, that thing on the bikes, and they did a presentation in London. He was there too. Uh, but there's a lot. It's really weird. We were all somehow connected. I guess it just to me the bike thing, especially more than the car thing, because yeah. I've always when I was a kid, I remember working at a gas station and seeing a pack of back then. Uh, they called they weren't they were called uh, it was a, a gang only from New Jersey, not pagans, but motorcycle gang, big one. Uh, I, I remember later. I'm. I'm, I'm Drawing a blank, but I've always loved that outlaw lifestyle. And see him on the road, I'm freaking out watching these dirty bikers. And back then, in the late '60s, early '70s, these guys were like wild, you know, yeah. riding with swastikas on their helmets and crazy shit. But you knew there was something wrong with it. But I liked it. Yeah, I was attracted to that outcast, outlaw lifestyle, you know. And that's why I always liked bikes. And the same thing with the cars. I kind of like that outcast thing, you know, and just being 
the different guy out there. Yeah. You know, that's what Watson brought to the scene, the, the colors and stuff, like how your automobile all of a sudden, it's the same one, all of a sudden, boom, look at this. You know, and, and all the custom guys out yeah. there, there's too many to know, to, to, to mention, you know. You know, all that, you know, I, I love all that, just being different, even with my home, just like be the different guy in the block. I definitely want to hear about the, the book that's coming out. Oh, the book, that, that took a long time making. I started that in 1998. Wow. That was a long journey, too, because I lost it twice during the uh, 9-11 attacks, the first time during the 9-11 attacks. Because what, what I did back then is, every, I still have the hard drives, these little things, slop drive, slop yes. disk. Oh, yeah. yeah. And I had the basics of that. And I had it all on my, on my laptop and in, and in my regular computer, and I would back up my laptop or computer, and of course 9-11 happens, what do you do? You want to find that information. You start going everything, next thing you know, but it got corrupted. Oh, wow. And because I had it backed up on that, I had it connected, I lost both hard drives. Oh, wow. I lost my book the first time. Jesus devastating but I still had these sloppy discs yeah when I started so the second time I trained my computer I'm like I'm not going to go through this shit again I trained my my laptop it, it was a thing called Naturally Speaking Dragon are you familiar with it? no it was a program back then and it, you train your computer to your voice I, I remember hearing about that yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. So it took like a month and a half for the fucking computer to figure out because I would say something it would type whatever the fuck I want yeah <laughs> yeah after a month and a half of training this stupid computer to hear my voice, the same shit happened. Something with the corruption. That's when I, that's when I gave up on PCs. I went to Max. Yeah. It's like, I'm done. So then I move over here and figure I'm going to finish my book. I start having kids. But I had a lot of it already printed up. I started printing stuff too. Then I started seeing my print stuff. So when we started doing the film about three years ago, it was a, before that, we, it was a guy, his name is John Widerhorn. He's a great writer. And he did Scott Ian's book, and he did uh, Al Ferguson from uh, Misery's book. Yeah, he writes for Rolling Stone, right? Yeah, he writes for a bunch of different comedies. He did his, his metal th- book, too. That's great. And he, he said, let me see what you got, Roger. He goes, I want to see what you got. I said, everything I got. He goes, wow, this is fascinating. This is great. But it was a little bit all over the place because it was a little bit messed up. Mm-hmm. He goes, let me help you finish this. I'm like, I, you know, I want to do it myself. Yeah. Story of my life. <laughs> so he goes okay I, I I understand two years go by he hits me up again he goes hey I'm just checking in did you ever finish that book what's going on I'm like you know what John my life is crazy I'm like, I, I think I I'm, 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 I'm I need help you know yeah. I'm, I'm never going to finish this book <laughs> sure as hell he goes send me everything again. he had everything and then uh, so it was a little place and um, he helped put it in a story tell like in a way and then we did a couple of interviews, like four or five deep, yeah. long interviews, and we started adding content. Then he would send it back, and I would redo stuff or whatever, back and forth. We collaborated very well, and uh, and we finished it. Finally, yeah. he helped me out, you know. And it's a it's a it's a book. It's an interesting book. It's like four parts of the book. The beginning, of course, is of course it not the front part of it, is and it was me as an immigrant coming to America seeing it from an immigrant side going into a mass fund then my prison error and then kind of coming out of it you know and it's the first three albums of Ignace are intense until I got to prison and then I got out then I had to rush through the rest of the ten albums yeah. towards the end so it's almost like two books in one 
but it's pretty intense. There's a lot of stuff, a lot of cool stuff. I think I think people would be interested in hearing. It's funny you mentioned on the state of mind. Is it a little part in there yeah. where Mike Ness is in another state of mind? Yeah, I I heard a little bit about that yeah, story. That story is kind of in there. Yeah. But that, I'm not the first one to tell you that story. That story was in um, that book that came out, American Hardcore. Oh, oh yeah. yeah. I, I think it's Jimmy who told me the Stern, about it. The Stern Brothers uh, uh, Youth Brigade, mm-hmm. they told the story in the, in the American Hardcore. And I just went and told the story what it was, too. But it was just, you know, back then we were young, dumb, and punk, you know? <laughs> And, you know, we all have our turfs to defend, and, and my story is about all, some of the stupid things I did, I couldn't make better decisions, and and where I ended up, and how I, you know, where I am today. Why I told my story is pretty much, honestly, is for my children, and their children, and their generations, you know? Because my kids don't have what I had. Yeah. I mean, they got, I mean, look, this is how they're growing up. They would never understand how, what I want, my struggles. So I kind of put I put I put a lot of stuff out there. It, it talks about violence, talks about drugs, drug abuse, talks about, um, you know, our first tour. I have a diary. I kept the diary against my first tour. Mm. So there's some pages of that in there, which is really cool, and uh, just a, a lot of stuff. I don't really there's, there's very I don't think there's very much mention of the is it, of the cars. The rumble stuff. It's really weird. I can't remember now because it altogether was like ended up being like three hundred and forty pages, but they cut out twenty one pages of stories That's and it. stuff. So I don't know. And I've read it so many fucking times. I went to two editors <laughs> that I think I speed read it now. Yeah. So I don't even know if there's any rumble stuff in there now that I think about it. <laughs> it's really crazy. I don't know what they took out, but they made they they focused it even more. The two editors that I went through. I'm keeping it tight to a really good straight up storytelling book and Lars Fredrickson got to got to read it and yeah. he said I'm on page 279 because I can't put this thing down this is great and he helped me start it if it wasn't for Lars Fredrickson I would have never started writing my book in 1998 or 1999 when we were doing a record together at my ride who's a producer he's the one that got all those floppy disks going for me was you're going to sit down right now where you're going to start talking we're, right, we're going to help you start writing a book sure. Is he out here quite frequently with his... his I know he has a band. Yeah, with he comes out here, you know. That's cool. So if it wasn't for him, I would have never wrote the book, A. And it's great to hear that he's like, a, he's like, I can't put this thing down. It's amazing. That's awesome. Yeah, I, I can't wait to check it out. It's so cool. There's so many, like, awesome... Re- uh, like, I was reading Harley Flanagan's book on the way here. Keith Morris's book is out. It's, it's, and, I like, think it's great that there's a lot of these books out. Because you know what? It, these are other people's lives, obviously, yeah. and uh, you get to realize, you get to kind of an insight in what life was like in certain times. And Marley's book is great. John's book is great. Keith's book is great. Uh, Dave from MDC's book. Is Everybody's got their own story. You know what's really interesting? And I didn't figure this out so much on my book. It's like, you know, because I had, I, I went back and I had to double check stuff with Amy. Mm-hmm. And her first thing she told me, this is recent towards the end, I wanted to make sure she was okay, was like, it's funny, we remember things differently. Yeah. I was like, you know, that's true. You know, even when I first met her, I remember differently than she remembers when I first met me. Weird. 
So it really my book or anybody else's writing a book is their perspective on how they remember things. It could be completely different. You could have been standing right next to me and you remember something completely different. And I never thought about that. Yeah, it's, it's really fascinating. Like my memories are my memories, but even though we did these things together, like your yeah. memories are a little different. Well, you want to remember what you want to remember. I want to remember. It's really weird. Yeah, it's, it's crazy to go back and try to fact yeah. check yourself too. Like, yeah, sometimes I even with these, I'll just go back and check a date or something. And sometimes every once in a while, where the hell does that memory come from? You know, it, and you know it's inevitable. Like I can remember so much, and I, I what I remember someone else can remember something different and of course it's a challenge of course and even dates and stuff are, are, are really weird sometimes to remember oh shit yeah sometimes I don't remember how old I was at a certain time then I go back oh shit yeah I was this old and you know yeah. but it is what it is you know it's my memory my recognition of my life of those events and it may not be others but that's that's fine with me I did have one thing that was just sort of curious to ask. Yeah, I know you moved from Cuba when you were real young, like, like four years old, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but the, the music Cuba is like was was everywhere in New York. You know, salsa came right right from from Cuba. Do you uh, do you listen to much Cuban music? Yes, yeah, I don't anymore. Yeah, I wish I did. Um, it's funny because and I'll say I mean, it's in my book. I went from like straight up. Cuban music, salsa, Latin music, to what 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 accompanied that Motown, salsa, Motown, and disco. Yeah, that that was the the way it ran. Then I got into punk rock. Right. I never knew rock, rock and roll. I heard of some bands, of course. I, my cousin played like a couple things, but like ACDC or something like that. But I wasn't. I didn't really get into them until after punk rock. Like I went to go see the Who. The Who, The Clash, and uh, one guy, David Johansson, he was on solo. And I walked out after The Clash, so I was that ignorant punk kid. <laughs> yeah. I never saw The Who. Wow. I really didn't know The Who until after I started getting to later on. You know, it was really weird. Now, I regret it. I'm like, fuck, The Who is great. Why did I leave? <laughs> you know? Because I never knew that. Yeah. Pe- normally, people come from rock. You know, they, Black Sabbath. I don't need, I'm not a Sabbath. I don't, I don't really know Sabbath. Yeah. And they get into that, you know? And I come from, like, fucking Latin, you know, Motown into punk rock. It's really weird, but that was the way I, I came across it, you know? But I grew up with all that. Yeah. I remember yeah. one other question I had. Um, so what's, like, your ideal album or, like, playlist while you're cruising your car? Man, I play the same shit all the time. <laughs> if you ask my wife, she'll probably tell you. I do love Thin Lizzy, and I learned to love him later on. It's one of my favorite bands. Yes! And the same as hard to say, and also I appreciate it later on, too, is Bruce Springsteen. Like, I remember when London Calling came out, I hated it. Me and a bunch of, probably every other punk rocker, I think, hated it. I didn't appreciate it. it. What? I I mean, I thought, I mean, you know, the first Green Album was great, and, and... Give me enough rope is yeah. phenomenal, my favorite. Yeah. And also, yeah. I come down, I'm like, what is this? And I hate it, deeply hate it forever, but I appreciate it later on. I get it now, you know? And uh, my playlist, and anybody will tell you, Mayor Bernatoras, I'm, I'm, I fucking listen to Misfits all the fucking time. Yeah. Because, and there's only so many of their songs you listen to, there's different variations. <laughs> I don't know why, but it, they all sound a little different. Like, she, like, four variations, yeah. she, and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. 
I listen to that all the time. Thin Lizzy and The Cure. I love The Cure. Secretly love The Cure. <laughs> and um, and I like a lot of female vocal stuff. A lot. I listen to Blondie. I listen to Joan Jett, Black Hearts. Um, I love all the early New Wave girl singing stuff, like uh, what's from California. It's really funny because I get my daughter to like it too, which is really cool. Yeah. Um, and I, and of course all old New York punk and stuff. I love Reagan Youth. Yeah. Um, not as much as I do like uh, on rotation all the time. I'd probably be the Misfits or Thin Lizzy. Yeah. Weird. <laughs> love a Jailbreak. Yeah. Jailbreak. Such a great album. Great album. Oh man, Cowboy Song. Oh, that's like, like my favorite song. My yeah. favorite all time song. Just those lead, that yeah. lead is just like, it's like the best lead ever, I think. Yeah, I'm, I've been known to sing it drunk karaoke a couple times, yeah. but... I hear guitar the fuck out of it. I challenge you to an A guitar <laughs> Dude, we're on. <laughs> awesome. Well, I, I think that's probably a, a good place to end it. Man, thank you so much for your time. This is well, a lot of fun. All right, there you have it. Thank you so much for listening. And man, Billy, Roger, thank you guys so much for an amazing day. You know, this is uh, this is one of those experiences that I'm going to carry with me for the rest of my life. You know, it it was a huge deal. And uh, thank you, everyone, who made it happen. And uh, you guys out there, you listeners who have been so overwhelmingly supportive, uh, who keep coming back, keep downloading, and, uh, and helping keep the show going, thank you guys for your continued support. It really means a lot to me. Um, if you're interested in the long-form conversation like this, there's another new podcast out there that I hope you guys check out. It's called Wheels of Confusion, and it's hosted by my friend Bob and Aaron. Uh, Bob, you might remember from, uh, from the Matchstick interview a few episodes back, they have this great new show. It's sort of a long-form discussion, more of a panel-style show, and uh, I really dig it. The first episode is out, and you guys should go check it out. All right, so that's all I got. Thank you guys so much for tuning in, and I'll see you next time. Thanks.